Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Hello, Alex. Happy 2022. Hi, Bobby. It's good to be back. Are you are you feeling optimistic about baseball in 2022? Uh, I, like in any way, like not even in an existential way. Are you optimistic about the A's? Maybe no. optimistic. Oh, about that's the what Mets, I was going to clarify. Like, like, like the A's, it's like like weirdly, I'm. It's never a good time when I'm more optimistic about the, the health of the sport than I am about my favorite team. Yeah, because I'm not that optimistic about the health of the sport. I think that we'll we'll have. A majority of a normal season that maybe like you know we might have some weird spring training like an abbreviated spring training or something like that and maybe miss a couple weeks it, the a's may not play at all or at <laughs> least may not be worth it it might be <laughs> better for you if they don't play yeah yeah it's not great i'm really optimistic about the mets in 2022 as you, you know when the, clock, when the clock scr- struck midnight uh on the East Coast, I was on the phone with my my family, and I said, "2022, this is the year that the Mets win the World Series." And that's what I say at the beginning of every year. But this year, right. I I said it with my chest a little more. Uh huh. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, hey, I could I could see it. You squint hard enough, you know, your eyes are closed, and you can see pretty much anything <laughs> you want, right? <laughs> I'm glad that the the owners imposed the lockout. Not leaving it up to the players to call a strike I'm, mid-season. I'm also glad the owners yeah. imposed a lockout. Yeah, not leaving it up to the players to call a strike mid-season, so that I didn't have to balance the fact that the Mets were definitely going to win the World Series this year with the fact that we lost the season because of a player strike. So I didn't have really to put tough. my two loves pitted against each other. You know, right, right. <laughs> if Max Scherzer is out there, uh, you know, agitating for a strike, and you're like, Max, buddy, get on, on the mound. <laughs> Wait until November. <laughs> Um, well, we're going to do our third annual State of Labor in Baseball in this episode, as you could probably tell by the title, with Michael Bauman, my coworker at The Ringer, uh, someone who has been writing and thinking and talking about labor in baseball longer than we've even been doing this podcast. Uh, if you haven't checked out the, the last couple, they are our first episode of the year every year. It might serve you as the listener if you're a new listener or if you just haven't if you hadn't been listening yet at that point to go check those out um, because I think that it serves as a good sort of time capsule for the, the way that our conversations about these things and the different factors that affect the labor landscape in baseball have changed over the last couple of years. Um, so those are our first episodes of the year for the last two years. Alex, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we get into that with Bauman? I mean, I we saw today we're recording this on Monday. Uh, midday saw today that they're that mlb and the mlbpa still have no dates for when they're going to go bargain so if there's something that you want to talk about it's it's not cba negotiations that's for not sure at all <laughs> <laughs> i'm like this is weirdly this is the time of year when we can actually just talk about normal baseball things if we really want to because there's nothing on the labor front that's worth breaking down you know like i don't know pour one out for kyle seager yeah True. 
I I don't have a lot to add to that, but I, you know, being an Ace fan, I I've watched him many times playing against the Mariners and boy, talk talk about a, a gamer. Talk about a, a real baseball player's baseball player. You're doing good. Keep going. I, I don't know. What are, the other, else? what are the other kind of platitudes? Just uh, a guy that suited him and booted him every day. He left it all out on the field every single day. And he went out on top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe uh-huh. that one doesn't apply. <laughs> he, he went out on his own terms. Yes, he did. Yes. After being screwed around by... That yeah. here, see, here's the labor take: is that management screwed him around, and he said, "You know what? I'm not. I'm not waiting around for you guys. I've I've put in my time. I'll I'll retire retire a mariner, and now he gets to enjoy the rest of his life with all of the money that he made playing the sport of baseball, which is Do you cool. Know that Kyle Seager hit 35 home runs in 2021. I don't know that I really did. Yeah, he's good still. He I, was, yeah, he was like kind of the Mariners' best hitter for a large part of the year. Um. I also thought that the the way that he announced his retirement was a pretty pretty cool power move. Just having just having his wife tweet out a screenshot from the notes app saying that Kyle Seeger is retired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, less uh, less year long farewell tours, more more notes app retirements. Yeah, agreed. Um, okay, well, let's go to our conversation with Bauman because it is as per usual. It is, a, it is a long and winding one. Uh, but before we do that, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Baisley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches. All right. It's the third annual state of labor in baseball. Honestly, Michael Bauman is here. Hi, Michael Bauman. Hey. Uh, it warms my heart that you and I can do something that isn't just bicker about the Phillies and the Mets for three years concurrently. It's, I think, the time of bickering about the Phillies and the Mets is about to come to a, come to an end. I think the the Mets are going to assert superiority in the not too distant future, barring something unexpected uh, like the end of a lockout, which would allow the Phillies to sign Carlos Correa. But. Well, that's a nice reverse jinx that you did there. Thanks thanks for doing that. Um, this is the third annual State of Labor in Baseball. If you're listening to this and you have not listened to the first two, well, they have been our first episode of the new year for the last two years where we gather around and we discuss how things feel uh, with the two sides in Major League Baseball. And obviously this year, it's top of mind for everybody, not just us. So I'd like to try to make this conversation something other than what even is a lockout or what are these two sides even disagreeing upon? But, you know, I did kind of want to start with the fact that we're in the midst of an active owner imposed lockout. Yeah. Uh, not to bury the lead. I didn't want to bury the lead too much. <laughs> um, is this going how you expected it to? I think you have to like, I have to throw everything I thought was going to happen two years ago out the window. Cause it seemed like, things were following a very predictable path. And then COVID happened, which not only took a lot of money out of everybody's pockets and sort of shifted the dynamics in, in unpredictable ways. Uh, but it also served as a dress rehearsal for with the negotiations to get the league back on the field last summer, which were uh, stupid and contentious as many labor management negotiations tend to be, uh, and ultimately self-defeating. And, and, you know, I think the owners left a lot of money on the table for themselves out of spite, but, uh, that's how these things go. 
Um, so yeah, if you want to go back to like, I don't know, maybe this time last year is too far in the past, but, uh, what I thought was going to happen six months ago. Yeah, this is exactly what, what I thought was going to happen. Like there was, there were headlines today that, uh, the, the union and the league had not met, uh, did and didn't have any bargaining dates scheduled. Like, yeah, I mean, there's no reason for them to, until there's a threat of, you know, you know, they've got their, their philosophical positions, their economic positions, their rhetorical positions, and they need some kind of external stimulus to move the needle. And until that happens, all that's going to happen. I think, like, I saw this summarized on MLB trade rumors or something. It was, you know, they need a deadline to to get something going. And yeah, that's exactly what what's going to happen. So I would be shocked if we see movement uh, in the next six weeks, frankly. It's going to take lost spring training games at the very least. And then once the ball does get rolling, I think it'll move fairly quickly. Why call a lockout? Like that might seem like a a relatively straightforward question, right? But like this lockout has been imposed. Obviously, everything is ground to a halt. As you've just uh, alluded to, we've seen very little movement uh, on the negotiation front in the past few weeks, and it doesn't seem like that's going to change. Can you illuminate a little bit like what the strategic move is there and like what the what the difference would be if say Manfred decided not to and they just said well we'll operate under the 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 CBA as it exists right now until we can negotiate uh, a new one obviously we've talked about why they're not going to play under an old and expired CBA because owners don't want to give up the prospect of a strike but can you can you illuminate that a little bit yeah i think that's what it boils down to it's if you look at the history of of gains by the the MLBPA, uh, whether it's 94, whether it's 81, or, you know, dating back to, I guess, free agency wasn't proximately caused by by the threat of a strike. But the the way the players gain leverage is choosing the timing of, of the strike. So, like, the CBA has a no strike, no, no lockout clause. And once that expires, either side can stop work whenever they see fit if they can get a consensus among themselves. So by locking the players out first, the owners are taking the hammer away from the players saying, you know, uh, get rid of draft pick compensation or move, you know, give us free agency a year earlier, or we'll go on strike the night before opening day, or we'll go on strike the night before the all-star game or the night before, you know, the start of the playoffs, which is something that like they really have ownership under or over a barrel at that point. So it's just about maintaining control. You know, I, the line that we saw from from Rob Bamford the night that it started about how it was like the players forced them to do it, that's total horseshit. But also it makes and it is an escalation, but it it makes strategic sense. I don't think it's like the equivalent of, you know, of sucker punching somebody. I, I this is just how this game was always gonna gonna get played out. And so yeah, it, I mean it's it's just one more thing that the owners can do to to maintain control of the situation. Since we don't know that much about negotiations, which aren't even happening, there's not that much to know. Yeah. Um, I don't want to spend too much time in this conversation, which is, you know, typically more of a general look at the labor landscape, talking about the, the current lockout, although, of course, it's an important element of this. Um, Alex and I got a question last week in a mailbag from a listener about basically asking if you were the union, what's the one thing that you absolutely must have from these negotiations? And... <sighs> Yeah. What is the one thing that you're willing to concede uh, to get that? Like, 
you not not that you want to give up this thing, but obviously to get something, you got to give something. That's the way these things work. Now, my answer to this, Bauman, you'll appreciate was, well, I'm not part of the MLBPA executive subcommittee, yeah, so I don't know no what kidding. my constituency wants. So it's hard for me to really answer this question because I don't know what they're really willing to fight for as an entire unit because they don't really message anything all that effectively as a union. But given all of that, that has already been said on this podcast. What is the one must-have if you were the union for you? And what would you give up to get it? I've got to have something that tilts the... Whether that's a change to to the free agency timeline, like, you know, what what the league actually proposed, tying free agency to age, I think that's the way to go. That's the way to get players paid earlier. And, like, the NHL model of all things, I think would be perfect for baseball. The problem is owners want to... The owner's proposal was it was twenty nine and a half. I think was uh, was where that where that started. The NHL the the free agency cutoff is twenty seven, uh, unless there are, there are other circumstances where it could be um, a little earlier. And getting you know getting that timeline moved forward because the whole thing the, like the whole free agency system was set up for players to prove themselves in their twenties and get paid in their thirties, and that's the way it worked until about 10 years ago. And that's when owners realize that players can be more productive younger and they can find these little loopholes that, you know, operate the system. I'm not going to say in bad faith because people have been throwing that around on Twitter and it makes me want to like <laughs> chop off fingers. Like there's a technical definition for that. And just because someone's being an asshole doesn't mean they're legally operating in bad faith, but they're finding loopholes and they're, they're pulling at these little threads and nickel and diming the players to the point where, where they've realized they can just suppress salaries or use the the threat of of leveraging suppressed salaries uh throughout their 20s during players most productive years uh to keep costs down and then just not fulfill that second half of the bargain where players get their big free agency payout in, in their 30s and that you know that's not going to hurt the the Bryce Harpers and Carlos Correa's and Mike Trout's those guys are always going to get paid but it's the middle class of players who are you know maybe get non-tendered once or they bounce around from team to team in their 20s but are still 10-year productive big leaguers but are still playing for the MLB equivalent of paycheck to paycheck. And so like you've got to find a way to get more people taken care of. And that's like that's priority 1 and what the specific mechanic of that is I don't know. Like I'm not Bruce Meyer and I'm glad I'm not him for a million reasons, but like, <laughs> like uh, this is the toughest part of that job is finding out a way to get something that not only makes like sense from an economic, you know, an economic uh, equity and justice standpoint, but that you can sell to your union, which is made up of more than a thousand people of, of dozens of different backgrounds and interests. And, you know, like, I don't know, we had we had a hard enough time keeping everybody in line in our union of, of <laughs> like a couple dozen people. Something that that stops that that stops the like in service time manipulation and the, the capital strikes and free agency that we saw a couple years ago and teams tanking. This is all the these are all branches from that one route that owners discovered in the in the early 2000s and you know in the moneyball era and and so finding a way to counteract that and get that pie distributed in a way that fits the you know fits how how players are valued you know and that could that might not be doable and that you know might require such a structural change 
that it can't be done in one CBA. And I think that, you know, that what you decide to dig your heels in for and what you decide to try to do the best you can with now and try to fix in the next CBA, that's one of the the toughest, uh, you know, toughest types of decisions that that they're going to have to make. So I, you know, I don't envy the the executive subcommittee and the the negotiating team for for the position they're in. You know, what would I be willing to give up? And this is something like, this is how you know I'm not them. I'd be willing to give up a salary cap. <laughs> yeah, like I'd be willing to institute a salary cap if if it gets a salary floor, if it makes sure that every team is, you know, trying to compete on at least a medium term window. Like, you know, we all understand. I think even the union understands that sometimes you just need to tear it down and start over. But what we can't see is something like what's happening in Baltimore, where they've been in like in the absolute shitter for five years and are farther away from competing than they were when they started. And there's no end in sight and it's just okay. And they can just keep, you know, cashing, revenue sharing checks for, you know, for is, uh, as long as the, the league continues this system. And so if like, if the cap and here's the other thing, like the lack of a salary cap, which has been like the line in the sand since, since the eighties, like this is what we lost the 94 world series over is the owners wanted a salary cap. If, if giving that like, Yes, we don't have a, a salary cap right now, but we have a luxury tax threshold that like the fucking Dodgers and the Yankees aren't willing to exceed. And what's the practical difference, I guess, is is my question. And so I'd be willing to sacrifice like that ideological bastion. And I know the union is not. So, uh, you know, I, I guess it's sort of a nonproductive answer to to that question, but I, it's something that that's, that means so little beyond the, just that it's something that you can hold on to like emotionally, like it means so little in terms of, of dollars now, uh, that, that I think you could get a lot more for it and get a lot more money in your members pockets by, by giving it up. Do you think that there's any fear of, because there are already debates going on about the split of, of revenue, that mm-hmm. goes to owners versus goes to players. Do you think that 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 fear of that divide growing even wider is kind of what is making them hesitant? Because obviously you put, I mean, you put a salary cap in, even if you put a salary floor in, knowing how revenues are skyrocketing in the game, right? Or with these billion dollar TV deals that are coming in and, and whatnot. Um, do you think that that is the cause of any sort of apprehension that it may turn out 5, 10, 15 years from now that whatever the certain salary cap is or the salary floor is, that it's not keeping up with revenues as we've seen has happened over the last two decades with salaries? Yeah, that's going to happen no matter what, I think. And, you know, I'm going to do an MLB show trope and and go back to hockey again, but just because <laughs> like this is the sport I, I pay the second most attention to, but also because it's had the most open public labor disputes over, you know, over my lifetime. So we have test cases for a lot of this stuff. This was what one of the big, the big, um, uh, talking points was, or, you know, the was hockey related revenue that in the CBA, each side is, is allocated a percentage of hockey related revenue and finding out what hockey related revenue is, has been a huge problem. And this is a huge problem in baseball now. Cause like you can, I don't know, like, 
Ben wrote something a couple years ago about how like not every MLB team is showing a profit and like, you know, had had documents and like you can make those documents say anything. You know, there was yeah. one of the Robs at BP. I, I think it was Rob Maines did a, a breakdown of like how <laughs> one of the Robs, <laughs> one of the Robs, they've got so many Robs and they're all smart and they're all wonderful. Um, but he did a breakdown during the, I think it was during the negotiations last year over the restart over what MLB teams show as losses or, you know, what they, how, you know, how they, they massage the, the books to, to make it look like they're not clearing hundreds of millions of dollars a year in, uh, in, in, um, in pure profit. in profits. Yeah. And, yeah. and he's like, this is just not how it works at like any other, in any other industry in, in North America. Like this is just not how you do the books. And so, you know, if they're not lying outright, like they're definitely occluding the truth intentionally like if we want to parse that so it and it's it doesn't even have to be that clever like you know what you write off through you know amortization or something like that it doesn't have to be that that minute like it's well are the cubs distinct from marquee network as the business are they distinct from the gentrification of chicago that has turned into uh the the ricketts family's uh, you know, major, um, you know, major projects since they won the World Series. You know, are the Cubs distinct from the Nebraska Republican Party? Like, this is all one big pot that's being, you know, being sloshed around, and the money's getting moved to one place or another. And if it's all internal, there's you know, limited, uh, limited insight or you know, limited transparency over like you know how much the Cubs are making and how much the Cubs rise in value impacts marquee network or the, the real estate developments, you know, and Wrigleyville and stuff like that. And so pinning that down and even for a publicly traded company like Liberty, which owns the Atlanta Braves and which is, has built like, like a, a Chinese style planned city in the middle of Cobb County. in what was the woods 10 years ago? Like that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars and wouldn't be there if not for the Braves, if not for the half billion dollars in, in, uh, in grants and tax rates they, they got from the County there. So, you know, what is all this worth? How much money are they actu- actu- actually making? It's, it's a huge accounting problem and it's far beyond my scope of expertise, but it's all, it's also what makes it hard to say what is, if you say 50% is fair, which I don't, I think a hundred percent is fair for the players because labor is entitled to all it creates. But I understand that that's not a popular position, certainly within the offices of major league baseball. But if you say that, a 50, or maybe even within for, the players union, like, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> within the 1200 people that make up the players. union, It is know. interesting. Like you'll see people coming out with like absolutely deranged right-wing political opinions within the, uh, within the players union while also being like staunch union guys. It's like, it's very interesting yeah. to see the complexities of political intersection uh, within this industry. But anyway, it's um, so if you say 50, if you say 50% is fair, finding out what 50% is, yeah, is <laughs> like a colossal problem uh, because there are multiple right answers depending on how you account for it. And there are also multiple wrong answers that you could, credibly pass off as a right answer if you have good enough accountants. And uh, this is something where the vast resources of of capital will always allow it to, to win out. And so, you know, it's just another way in which the, the union is fighting an uphill battle. And it also complicates my position saying 
which is that maybe if you can, depending on what you can get, maybe a salary cap system is the, is the way to go. Um, because that's tied to revenue. And if you can't find a satisfactory answer for revenue, if you're going to get lied to about what revenue is, then the salary cap is no good. So yeah, it's like I said, I don't envy, I don't envy Bruce Meyer and the, <laughs> the rest of the bargaining team. They've got a tough job. Well, we got We got a question from one of our listeners, John asking how good is labor's current picture of owner of ownership's overall revenue? And the answer is not very good. And I mean, I don't know how good their picture is versus the public's picture, but because of what you're describing, like because of the accounting tricks that you can pull, because of amortization, because the owners are able to credibly cry poor to the public all of the time and reasonably show losses year over year, like the answer to that question is it's not a very accurate picture. So they're not even trying to institute a salary cap and argue for 50% of that. Because, you know, if you look to the other leagues, like if you look to the NBA, for example, they have a similar problem to what you described in hockey, where they're arguing all the time about what is basketball related income and how much of that are they entitled to. And I think that the MLB PA stance has been like, why would we give up the problems that we know and that we've negotiated on for 40 years for different problems that we're not sure we're going to be able to get concessions on anyway, right? Because this came up when we were doing our CBA ABC's episode about revenue sharing, where we're like, it's so complicated, like how money gets passed back and forth between teams and whether or not that actually credibly has any trickle down effect to the players themselves or whether that just trickles down to the owners who then use it to like open up a sports betting partnership. I just wonder sometimes whether it's even worth like signing up for that battle. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And. It might not be like it's it's eminently possible I'm wrong about this. Uh, so it's it, I, but like, why give up this problem with to to exchange it for more, you know, new, more, possibly more inscrutable problems? That's I don't have a good answer. For that. I just know that they're getting screwed now and they're getting a lot of the drawbacks of a salary cap system without any of the benefits. I'm I'm curious. I mean, you have you've kind of referenced the the '94 strike and some of the and the ways that the owners have really kind of controlled the narrative, really ever since then, ever since that negotiation, right? That basically since the turn of the century, owners have uh, since really they led hired the, Rob Manfred. Is the, right? Yes, yeah. ex- exactly. And while historically, I think the the players' union has been regarded as a relatively strong sports union, I think over the last couple decades we started to see that power wane um a little bit but i'm i you know i'm wondering what you make of the the landscape as it exists right now politically culturally do you see the players being poised better poised to take advantage of the the position that they're in right now because obviously they are asking for a lot they are coming off as more militant, more publicly militant than they have been in recent years. And I think you're starting to kind of see a shift in fan sentiment as well on on whose fault it is. The billionaires versus millionaires line is being trotted out, although maybe less so as as it was 20 years ago. So do you do you see this climate as being one that's more amenable to the fight that the players are waging right now? Do you think that they're ready to actually kind of meet this moment, so to speak? 
Yes and no. I think the union is better internally prepared. I think they're better at messaging. I think social media has a lot to do with this. I think the disgruntlement of the players over, you know, it's been, uh, you know, 26 years of labor peace has been the line, but, you know, mm-hmm. how costly that piece has been to certain players uh, has gotten them motivated for a fight. And I think there's better class consciousness. Like what I, you know, what I, putting, you know, pushing back on you see, you know, you see story after story of like, you know, how important, what a leadership role Max Scherzer's taken, for instance, or like the tradition of the importance of union leadership. Like this is something that, that AJ Burnett passed down to Garrett Cole, the passed down to James Tyon, who's now, you know, who's uh, now, a, a, you know, one of the senior figures in, uh, in his clubhouse. And, you know, that oral tradition or, you know, that indoctrination really is, is something that's, that's happened and you know we've seen more player empowerment we've seen players become bigger personalities we've seen players take greater control of their own media narratives through social media through you know other outlets that are available to them and so that you know that democratization of of um i guess the bully pulpit is the has worked in the players uh has worked in the players favor definitely and i think that you know we're still in a a culture that is hostile to workers that, you know, I think like a lot of the, the red scare bullshit of the, of the cold war still holds suede's like this is still traditionally or still like compared to, to the height of union power in the 20th century. You know, this is a very anti-labor culture and it's been indoctrinated as such, you know, the, you know, you want to talk about corporate control and media and, and things like that. And, and uh, so I, you know, I think broadly speaking, the billionaires versus millionaires line still plays. And, but at the same time, there's a groundswell of discontent with the super wealthy uh, that is picked up since the, the economic crash of 2007, 2008. And, you know, that's shaped the class consciousness of, you know, people in my generation, definitely. And, you know, even players, I think to a certain extent, and, uh, you know, who are, who are old enough to, to have been impacted by that. And, so, you know, we'll see, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing societally like, a, would say like a moderate, you know, small to moderate groundswell for, for unionization, uh, you know, the reunionization of, of, um, certain industries, you know, for socialist political candidates here or there, you know, here and there. Um, but at the same time as and this is mirrored against or you know reflected against a backdrop where you know billionaires just so obviously took trillions and trillions of dollars from from workers during the pandemic and have leveraged the pandemic into um have leveraged the, the pandemic into you know this great machine of human immiseration for profit and that's not going unnoticed, but what's also happening is they're realizing that, you know, the people who are rich enough to own baseball teams, the people who are rich enough to go to space, uh, they've also realized there's nothing any of us can do about it. That like, there is nothing that, that workers, whether they're baseball players, whether, you know, whether in any industry, there's nothing that we have to threaten them with. So they don't have to care that they're unpopular. So you brought up the 07, 08 financial crisis as being like sort of radicalizing for your generation. I think that similarly for Alex and I's generation, the uh, 
the blowing up of gig work or like the, you know, the increase of gig work has been kind of radicalizing for like a lot of younger people who have gone into like the, gone into the professional space and like become working, young working individuals. And I feel like there's a big analog for that in baseball where like we're talking more about the exploitation of the minor league system and the exploitation of younger players in the same way that we're talking about how like if you're an Uber or a Lyft driver, mm-hmm. you're like being exploited because you're not a full-time employee who's like getting a, a reasonable weight, hourly wage and health benefits and everything like that. And, you know, I wonder, and this is a very hard question, but maybe something that we can use to pivot to like more generally, what is the future of these labor negotiations look like with ML- with MLB and the MLBPA? Um, I wonder how much longer they can put off the big fight of like, tr- like blowing up the system as it's structured and, or like, or potentially including the minor league players in the union or unionizing the minor league players separately, whatever that actually looks like um, on, on paper. Because, you know, like this economic system, I think all three of us believe can only exist so long with this level of exploitation by the owner class. Like it will bottom out eventually because they will pull all of the resources out of it. And the they optimism don't, they, of youth right here. <laughs> they don't I care. Think no, no, no. I don't mean that like it'll blow up and the workers will take back the power. It'll just be municipally owned baseball teams. I just think it will crash and like baseball will be irrelevant eventually. That might be like a hundred years from now, but like the way that it's currently being exploited is not sustainable forever. Right. Do you agree with that sentiment? I don't know. I think forever is a long time. I think that it's so it's so entrenched right now. Like, here's how I know that professional sports is not in North America is not a healthy system because we haven't lost a major league team in 40 years. Like when when the the Cleveland Barons folded in the in the, in the NHL, that was the last time we lost a uh, a major league team. We you know we haven't lost an MLB team in more than a hundred years, and so like that's how we know that that they're so insulated from the consequences of, of their actions. Like, you know, the owners have taken losses here and there, but they're making more money than ever. They have more power than, uh, since before free agency. So I, I think they can continue indefinitely as long as they don't care. And there's, so like what can happen, right. To make, to, to, to put that fight actually, you know, to, to bring that, that decisive battle of Armageddon. It's something that uh, would threaten the, the viability of, of the league, which I don't know, you know, if the pandemic didn't do it, I yeah. don't know what's going to, um, or it's something that would turn the tide against, you know, public opinion so ferociously against this, this for-profit ownership model, uh, that, you know, that it forces the, the lead to capitulate. And, you know, here we are, you know, waving the red flag and singing the international and still living and dying with the, you know, with the assholes who own the the Phillies and the Mets. And so it's, that's never going to happen. What I think could happen is they, and this is one disadvantage of the lockout because they can't bring in um, replacement labor uh, like they could under a strike. But if there's a, you know, if there's a strike that, that threatens a season that like imperils the league and they break the union, like that's, that's the only thing I think is realistic in the, I don't know the next 10 years. I think that's far more likely than, than any kind of, uh, any kind of other great realignment of power. Cause they're so protected from outside investment. They're so, so 
from outside competition, I should say, they're so protected from from even the moderate financial risks of, of owning a like a government protected cartel. There's no risk. There's no risk whatsoever to to uh, to this economic system. And so I just don't see what the threat is to owners that makes them reorganize because they're just making reorganize in either, you know, in either direction. Um, so I think short of the union dissolving, I, you know, I don't see any other way that, that we're going to get something other than something that looks like the system we have now. And, you know, whether that's changing the, the arbitration scale or, or changing free uh-huh. agency, you know, I, it's possible they could have a big fight. You know, we could lose half a season. We could lose a whole season. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, take that off the table because I think that those minute differences matter to the tune of billions of dollars a year for lots of people. And you know, it's that if that's not worth fighting over, I don't know what is. Uh, so I could definitely see a big fight, but I don't know about the big fight right now. Yeah. It definitely doesn't feel like the players are radicalized enough to get there. Right. You know, even we talk about, you know, the union being more militant than it has been in years. And that really means just like pushing back <laughs> on owners' claims about profits, yeah. right? Which is like, you know, you zoom out and I'm like, wow, we still have a, we still got a ways to go, right? For them to really start talking about the money that's pouring in and out of the system. And I mean, that doesn't even, you know, touch uh, minor leaguers or or like, you know, college players, high school players who get drafted in and the, and the protections that are not afforded them. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there's still so much outside the margins, I feel like, that we're not even close to touching right now. Yeah. As heartened as I am by Jerry Blevins's tweets, I'm aware of the <laughs> that they have a limited utility. So I'm, you know, I'm definitely grateful and encouraged to to see that kind of rhetoric coming from players. But I also, you know, I'm realistic about, about how useful that actually is. I'm curious on on the point of the the draft. I mean, that is a that's an area in which I mean, it hasn't really come up in negotiations at all in part because it doesn't benefit the players union, right? They're not a part of the union, so they don't they're not compelled to negotiate on behalf of them. But the draft is an interesting I feel like part of this discussion that um is is often excluded again for the reasons that I, you know, I just mentioned, but the the draft is like the the minor leagues on steroids, so to speak, when it comes to this sort of exploitation where there's little to no negotiation that players are are able to have. And, and it's to the point where owners are actually interested in kind of bringing that model to the international stage, right? Mm-hmm. To, um, to further kind of rein in some of the possible spending that's out there. I'm curious... Because I know that there are, uh, you know, the NCAA players in the NCAA are having their own discussions about um, organizing, and that's picked up momentum in the last couple years. I'm wondering if you see any potential changes on the horizon there at all. If the if the the rule for draft is just in its current form, if it's here to stay forever. Or if you think that this kind of growing wave of uh, class consciousness, so to speak, might tip into that arena anytime soon. Yeah, I think that's, well, I think NIL in college is is big. And, you know, there's certain individuals 
have a lot of leverage in the draft. And I think the very star players, you know, the players who you you would expect to to actually be big leaguers with any sort of career are gonna are always gonna have leverage and they're gonna have more now than ever. I think with a with a shorter draft, we're gonna see players hold out for, you know, maybe play an extra year for college, which for pitchers in particular is not as dangerous as it was 20 years ago. One thing that with the with the cap on 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 spending, the players who don't get jerked around are players who can afford to like who who aren't basing like their entire family's financial welfare on this one payday. So, you know, players who come for money, like Mark Appel, you know, didn't sign for a dime less than what he wanted. You know, Kumar Rocker could uh could hold out. Chris Bryant, Bryce Harper, maybe not Bryce Harper, but like players. <sighs> Players who who either you know aren't who have other options really Kyle you know Kyler Murray is the the best example of this so I don't think it's it's that big a loss for Major League Baseball if more top high school players go to go to college and they can outsource that development and risk of of the the eighteen to twenty one years for instance and now you know the players can maybe outside of like LSU and Mississippi State and and Texas A and M there's no there's no like chance for for players to make like real money on nil stuff but they can you know live better than they did uh, a few years ago um but you know in terms of, of structural change you know i think it works for for ownership and you know one thing that's important to remember is like the union can advocate for for drafted players because they're not members and so it just it speaks to the i don't know i'll go back to another hockey example not the nhl but when the when the U.S. women's national team held out uh, and threatened to, to boycott the world championships unless they got better funding and equal, um, you know, equal accommodations to to the men, that strike worked because they were on the phone to every single player that they could get to that USA Hockey could get to replace them from, and like they they whipped uh, to the point where there was where the the governing body had no choice but to succeed basically because there was no alternative labor for you know no no reserve army of the unemployed to you know to to use the the you know the technical term and so there will always be a reserve army of the unemployed because of minor leaguers because of the international market which impoverishes and immiserates players from childhood and you know is close enough to human trafficking that if adam laroche really wanted to make a difference he'd go to the dominican republic with all his anti-porn dvds uh instead of <laughs> going on safari like like he decided to do but because wow. of that there will always be people who what a who detour will, <laughs> who can come <laughs> into just a bunch of words i did not expect yeah. to be spoken on oh, this podcast yeah. Look, like this is why I come on on this show is so I can get loose. Like, yeah. <laughs> but because, but the draft will always create to to some extent that reserve army of of surplus labor to that can, you know, they can that ownership can use to to threaten, you know, to use replacement players or whatever. So it's, um, yeah, I, you know, it's. It's tough because there's nobody out there advocating for them. And it's so much harder to, like, I don't know how you really organize, like, high school and college baseball players. The way you could, you know, the the path to minor league unionization looks pretty straightforward, at least from the outside. But I don't, yeah. you know, I don't know how you do that for the draft. I I mean, it looks pretty straightforward, but so does, like, climbing Mount Everest. Like, there is a path, and it's, I guess, straightforward, but also really fucking hard. Well, you know, you know how it's done. 
Like yes. you could there it it has like there's precedent and there are procedures and you know what those procedures are even if even if following through on them is extremely difficult. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I agree with that. I mean I think the growing organization around minor league baseball even though that is with like outside advocacy groups slash people talking about it on podcasts I think that is one of the more encouraging things in the baseball labor world since we started doing this state of labor and baseball podcast like two years ago I mean people were mad about treatment in the minor leagues but people weren't really saying it out loud in any way that could ever lead back to any kind of change or like retribution or anything like that. And now current minor leaguers are growing on the record. Like that, that sort of still is mind blowing to me. Is there something that you're most encouraged by Bauman since we started doing these podcasts in the last two years? Is there like a, a trend or like an event or a win that you can point to that you're like, this is something that I wouldn't have expected. Um, I think the most encouraging thing is NIL for college athletes. I don't know if that's unexpected. I think that was always, that's mm-hmm. been coming for 10 years. And it was obvious, like that was just so such an obvious miscarriage of justice that, that it had to get corrected, even in the society we live in. I think what you said about the, the minor league working conditions and pay um, is, is probably my answer. I think, so I've got a good friend who's not a very, folksy low country south carolina person and a tax attorney and he uh he said something to me about tax law that has stuck with me he said the pigs get fat and the hogs get slaughtered and the save america's pastime act feels like a hogs get slaughtered moment because this was just like they were getting away with with paying minor league baseball players six thousand dollars a year on uh, you know having them work year round and you know players living in their cars and putting bunk beds in closets and stuff like that. And that was all kosher, you know, in, in our, you know, within the American sports watching public and that the, the lobbying effort that they just got a little greedy and weren't going to gain that much money, uh, by doing that. But I think it, it's, it shone a light on some of that. And and this is, you know, this is an easy win for the labor movement. It's, it's such an easy case to make. And, you know, it, I think it illustrates to a lot of people, a lot of people think that like a ball guys make $150,000 a year mm-hmm. because they assume that all pro athletes are, are compensated as well as like, you know, LeBron James and Mike Trout and they're not. And uh, I think a lot of people just genuinely weren't aware of that. And so this has become, it's become a case that's very, very difficult, difficult for MLB to make. And even if there's no like legal remedy. You know, even if they're not going to or even if, you know, there aren't going to be people with with pitchforks, you know, if the Bolsheviks aren't going to make you pay your pay your rookie ball team a living wage, it's it's not a it's more trouble than it's worth to keep having this. And so even like the insulting, frankly, measures that that MLB or that the MLB teams have done to, you know, to provide housing to provide modest raises in income, you know, it's. It's shameful, but it's also it's it's life changingly better for the people who are on the ground, you know, now yeah. versus three years ago, even. So, I, you know, I think that you know, if you want something to be optimistic about for the labor movement, it's it's uh, and this is not just in baseball, but but elsewhere, it's like just get these little wins at the bottom, and you know, you start to build class consciousness, you start to to develop a little bit of 
if not momentum, then at least test cases that say, okay, this is what's possible. And maybe it's not perfect, but it's better than it was. And, you know, it's better than it would have gotten. And you, you, know, you start to build solidarity among the labor force and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, seven steps later, you get the, the global proletarian revolution. And, and, uh, so seven easy steps. You sound like an infomercial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one trick. <laughs> if I'm, if I'm going to do a grift, I guess that's, that's probably, that's the only pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, although the cynic in me is like, they also cut 42 minor league teams and they're probably actually saving money in the long run, but that's that's just the cynic in me. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think minor league, you know, minor league baseball is such an important thing for, for grassroots growth of the game. Like, yeah. I was 13 years old before I went to a major league uh, baseball game for the first time. Um, but by that point, I'd been to a couple dozen minor league games because they were, more accessible and cheap. And, you know, my parents had three kids and money was tight sometimes, you know, even in the days of the vet, like they couldn't, you know, afford parking and hot dogs for everybody, you know, once a week. So like, I didn't have the, that traditional, like, oh, I was always, you know, sitting on my dad's lap at a, at a game from when I was three years old, like kind of, kind of upbringing. And that was a huge part of my development uh, as a, a young baseball fan. And, you know, I imagine that goes even more for, for people who didn't grow up 15 miles from, from a big league stadium. And so my hope is that that grassroots baseball, if, if it, you know, that void that gets left in terms of infrastructure, in terms of desire gets, you know, gets replaced by like wood bat leagues and, and indie ball teams. So you get an, or, you know, um, where, you know, where it's, uh, available college baseball, like, so you can get like something where you could see relatively high quality baseball and with your family for relatively little money. And, you know, it's, as I've lived in, in college towns throughout my, my twenties, that's been, you know, it's been a, a huge thing is being able to find, find baseball on the terms that fit the community. And, and so I hope that void gets filled. Um, cause I, you know, I think there really is an appetite for that, but with that said, I don't know that we, you know, I don't know that we need as much minor league baseball as we've got just from, if if the goal of minor league baseball is to service the big league rosters, I think you know we probably had a, a somewhat bloated system. So I can understand that call from you know from that re, you know reason for the minor leagues to exist. But I also don't think it's the only the affiliated minor leagues are not the only way to service the consumer needs of or the cultural needs of, of local grassroots baseball. Yeah, I mean, certainly you think about Rob Manfred's idea for one baseball, and and the minor leagues are a huge part of that, or even not necessarily the minor leagues, but but baseball in communities that is not like capital MLB Major League Baseball, right? Like there are other avenues to that, that it seems like they are kind of untapped resources at this point. And the thing of, of the thing of one, you know, one baseball. That's not how it works in almost any other sport, almost anywhere else in the world that like you have, I guess, like a broad community of baseball, but or you have the broad community of, of football or soccer or hockey. But anywhere, anywhere a sport is important, there are multiple levels and multiple ways to interact with it. And so I don't think MLB should have that much power. Like it, it's healthy to have a, a strong, independent uh, baseball system. It's healthy to have a strong college baseball system or, or an amateur league system, or to even have, you know, a good relationship between MLB and MPB and KBO and the other major leagues elsewhere in the world. And, you know, there, that's how you get, 
the sport to serve the community is if it's not top down, if it's, if it's built around and, you know, built for the people who are going to the park. And I think, you know, we talked about where all this came from, uh, in, in terms of the, the divorce between the financial incentive to win and the financial incentives in how, in how teams actually get paid. I think a lot of that is the influence of RSNs and, and streaming broadcasting rights and, and the centralization of, of the big money. You don't have to fill the building to turn a profit anymore. And if you don't have yeah. to fill the building, then you don't have to take consumer concerns into account. And you don't have to, um, you know, you don't have to put a winning team on the field. And, you know, and I'm not somebody who goes to a lot of live sports. This is not like the, or if I do, it's on a, you know, it's on a press pass usually anymore, but still like this is another member of the press pass elite alex yeah so it's it's you know even if 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 i'm not the person can't understand what the working man has to fork over for a ticket and a hot dog i understand it all too well and because i work (laughs) in media it's something i can't indulge in as much as i'd like but but if, if you're not responsible to the people who are in your building, who are actually going to, to your place of commerce, then who are you responsible to? Um, you know, how are, how are those consumers, to use the ugly capitalistic term, the people who actually enjoy the sport, who make the sport what it is, how are they going to get their, their needs heard and their needs met? And I, yeah. and I think the short answer is they're not. And that's what we've seen for the past 15 years. So I think it's healthy for them to find it's healthy for for a diverse baseball ecosystem so that people who aren't like television executives can have a seat at the table even if it's not a seat at the table at the highest level yeah and i think that's what i'm talking about when i say like this level of exploitation of baseball as a economic system can only go on so long before you start to actually legitimately lose so many fans that it's not as profitable for the owners as they've been become accustomed to and like at that point they just they want to bail or like they want to start selling all of their teams and then the entire revenue income system needs to change because like there's not going to be rsns forever there's not going to be this big cable money forever and they're going to need to figure out different ways to make that money now those choices that they've made or started to indicate that they're making is like that's going to become real estate or that's going to become sports betting or like that's going to become a conglomerated streaming service between NBA, NHL and MLB. But I guess I'm just wondering. (laughs) No comment. Um, I guess I'm just wondering, you know, whether that that will also have to come with a signal back to the fan who actually wants to come to the game. Like whether that will also have to come with, you know, starting to spin that plate again of like actually needing to sell out the arena to make as much money as they were accustomed to. Because like, I don't know if the streaming package that they're going to negotiate is ever going to be good as like this golden era of TV rights has been for them. That's just a lot of like unknowns that we don't really have time to get into here. But I do think that there is like, there is a path here where, where they do commit more to the actual in-person experience and say like, oh, there are fewer and fewer in-person experiences that you can actually enjoy. Why don't we make baseball one of them? Or why don't we let allow baseball to continue to be one of them and still profit off of that the same way that we always have? But I, I, it's going in the other direction. Exactly. You can't, you can't extract enough money from every one of 40,000 seats to make up for how much you can make. You know, if, and if you think like, 
like right now the stakeholders are you know the RSNs those that aren't already owned by uh by the teams and ESPN and Fox and Turner and like if you think those those stakeholders aren't responsible or, or aren't responsive to fans like wait until you see the full real estateization of of baseball or the you know baseball basically only existing so it's something you can convince suckers to bet on um and you know that's going to be a bottomless well of money and it's it's just going to dwarf like anything that you can like any amount of peanuts and cracker jack that you can sell yeah and so you know does it does major league baseball ever get back to that like barring the total collapse of that revenue stream I don't see a path back there. Now, does that create an opening for, you know, clever indie ball team or leagues to to pop up? Does it create an opening for um, you know, for college and amateur teams to to market themselves more aggressively and and maybe take up some of those lost can, you know, mm-hmm. you know, family with kids or the you know, people who just want to go sit outside and enjoy a nice afternoon and have a beer. Like you know, the the um uh, you know, Norman, God, it took me 20 <laughs> seconds to come up with the name Norman Rockwell, uh, but <laughs> it is January 3rd, you know, yeah, it's a weird it's, time. Our brains are not all functioning perfectly. Yeah. I, but the, the time, but the place for that won't be at the big league stadium anymore. And I don't, I would love to be wrong about this, but honestly, a path back there. I mean, it certainly seems like it has to be coupled, coupled with a shift in mindset of what the purpose of baseball it, like baseball mm-hmm. is not you're, it's not the same experience you're going to get when you go to a basketball game when you go to a football game and it's i mean i guess football games are not a great example because those are also not constant action but i think that you know there's this people go to, to go to a baseball game and say well why is you know it's three hours long why is it so slow and there has to be i think a, a mindset shift a little bit of saying well this is also it's a it's a social uh, you know, form of entertainment, right? It is not something where you're going to sit there and be engaged for two straight hours, but you will go and have a couple beers that hopefully don't cost you $17 a piece and you can, uh, you know, have some halfway decent food that isn't like, you know, pig trimmings stuffed into like a little like <laughs> sheath of skin, you know, like there's actually like a, a decent uh, uh, experience to be to be had there, I think. But that requires... Uh, I think there's a cultural shift that has to happen as well. I think there's a cultural shift that needs to happen for Alex with with regard <laughs> to dogs. pig trimmings. Yeah, like <laughs> I've had some good pig pig trimmings in my time. That is that is true. Yes, all I'm I'm just asking for some quality from quality. Pig yeah, well, Adam that, LaRoche. There, there you go. That's his that's his beat right now. Right, is the meat market. That's. Oh boy. Um, I'm not going there as loose as I've, I've been willing to get on this show, but that I, that speaks to, I don't remember the last time I went to a baseball game as a fan, like for the purpose of seeing the game as such, like it was something to do while I hung out with my friends. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's a very different way than I consume other sports, particularly other live sports. And, it, but that's, but that, I think it, that's the fundamental like pastoral Americana charm of baseball is it's, it's not always urgent, but it's always there. Yeah. You know, and <sighs> poetry, this man's a writer. So 
<laughs> maybe Major League Baseball as, as like the primary purveyor of that. Maybe that the time for that has come and gone, and we're entering a gold, you know, golden age of, of indie ball. Yeah. Um, maybe it, I, the purpose of the game, like if the purpose of the game is to to fill any kind of social need, it would be whether that's the constant like constant entertainment of, of basketball uh or the you know the the you know crockpot comfort of 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 your average baseball game um that's there is no social need that is the the purpose of base of major league baseball right now the purpose of major league baseball right now is to you know increase franchise values and and uh, the accumulation of wealth and that's antithetical to anything that that we're talking about so it's a, it's why we talk about like you know, we get asked a lot, like, what is, what is, or we get asked frequently enough that it's come up many times in the podcast, like, what is the ideal leftist future of Major League Baseball? And I'm like, those, those things are like oil and water, kind of. But if you're actually going to, it probably doesn't involve Major League <laughs> Baseball. Yeah, though. yeah, yeah. I actually, I actually hate the answer to this because it's kind of an anarchist answer, and I think anarchism <laughs> is leftism for babies. But like, like total wow. decentralization. Yeah, is yeah. the is the ideal leftist future and you, municipal ownership of right these teams because that that's really the only way that we can get to what you're talking about, right? Like last week, I talked about how I wish Major League Baseball stadiums were actually just like public parks. You know, like like the amount of money that gets put into a place like Central Park is not totally out of whack with how much money would have to be put into like a baseball stadium and upkeep and to put on an exhibition like that. And except the return for it is like way higher because major league baseball brings in billions and billions of dollars in TV revenue. And you could presumably still sell that to ESPN. If like New York city owned the Mets. I, I hope in this, in this uh, analog scenario, I'm also able to have a picnic in left center field <laughs> yeah. while a baseball game yeah. rages, sure. rages around me. <laughs> Sure. I'm sure not? you could at the polo grounds at some point. <laughs> exactly. There's a, a D1 college baseball team that that I don't know if they still do it anymore, but like they were making the NCAA tournament while while like setting up a temporary stadium or temporary stadium every weekend in Van Cortland Park in New York. And that was their um their home field. And so, you know, there's a way to do it. It doesn't have to be that bare bones. So I think back to like the early MLS, you know, the soccer specific stadiums. I love like Minute Maid Park and and uh, and Target Field and these state of the art like retractable roof and you know huge jumbotron uh, stadiums you know with distinctive architectural features. But if you just want something that's safe and clean and comfortable, you can get that for a fraction of what Major League stadiums are going for. And for you know, and they don't have to be like tiny bandboxes. They could be fifty, sixty, seventy thousand thousand seats. You could build that for, you know, for what, like a quarter of what your, if that of, of what your average stadium goes for now. Um, and that could, you know, service the same product with cheaper ticket prices and cheaper concessions prices and, and make it more accessible uh, to the community. But it's not flashy. Like we've got to have complexity. We've got to have prestige. It's not, you know, it's, it's an anti-populist yeah. movement for something that, you know, for a long time, and in many parts of the world still is, an extremely populous sport. And so, you know, it's just not the direction that that our society is prone to take things. But, like, you know, you could have a, a great baseball park for something suitable for Major League Baseball or, or AAA for, I don't know, like 
30, 40 million dollars instead of two billion or whatever it takes to build one now. Um, if you're just willing to forego like the luxury boxes and the bells and whistles and yeah, and you know, make something that works and make something that's cost effective. But that's you know, this is just not the the way that yeah, the way that things go now. Yeah, because it doesn't increase franchise values. Right. Exactly. You look at the 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 ballpark they put together for the Field of Dreams game, right? Which is like not necessarily frills left and right, right? And but you could easily <laughs> you could easily raise those cornfields and like put a bunch of uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> bleach bleachers in center field, and like that's actually a a a decent looking like ballpark that I think services the game maybe more than than something that has, you know, blaring bells and whistles and flashing lights left and right. I think the answer here is us three, after we get off this podcast, we write a plan to earn some venture capital money to make a startup baseball league where it's not broadcast on television, can't make any money through that. It's all about the in-person experience. What do you think? I mean, there's... (laughs) But I'm just thinking I'm it through. Shocked. He's willing. I'm shocked that there hasn't yeah, been like some in. kind. There hasn't been like a serious competitor at, to MLB since since integration. And I'm I'm like every other league has had somebody come for them, or at least like try to force a merger or, or to provide something of similar quality, but with some kind of alternative viewpoint. And I guess maybe the fact that all those ventures failed uh, is you know a good argument not you know yeah. not to spend two hundred billion dollars on it, but or $200 million or whatever it would cost to to start an XFL. But I mean, the ABA didn't really fail, but they also had like no. superstars, you know, like right. they Neither also had WHA. players. Yeah. They had, they had players willing to like make radical labor action or take radical labor actions. Even if they weren't thinking of it as radical labor actions, it was kind of radical to like hold out from the NBA and be like, no, fuck you. I'm going to go play for this other upstart league. So who's our Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? I guess is the or Julius Irving or, or yeah. Julius Irving. Yeah. Oh yeah. He didn't. I got. I got the the story mixed up of with his meeting with. I think it was the Abdul-Jabbar's meeting with. I think it was the Nets when yeah. they drafted him. But yeah, we could find. I mean, there's probably someone out there. There's probably someone out there. But then more, most likely, we're just going to end up looking like the big three. If you're a I'm billionaire, fine with that. we can start the big. If you're three, a billionaire and you're a sucker and you want to give us lots of money to try to take down MLB. Famously, a lot right. of billionaires listen to this podcast. Uh, a lot of and, them are suckers, though. And so, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> they are suckers. There are less fun ventures that you could take, right? At least this one would would get you a baseball game or two. You tell me if if MLB continued to freeze Steve Cohen out, you're telling me he couldn't have been talked into this. I'm telling you that he could have been, which is why we should stop talking about this and start writing it down. Uh, he is Michael Bauman. He is the staff writer at the Ringer. Bauman, is there anything? you want to plug or is there any other uh, rabbit holes of rants that you want to go down similar to last year when you said that uh, cord cutting is a scam? Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. So I'm just saying, is there anything that you'd like to put on wax now as something that you're going to be right about in a year from now? Any uh, other electric pet- cars are a scam. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But I don't have, but you told me you have a hard out in seven minutes. So <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that feels like that might take a little time to unpack. Electric I'm going to try to get this yeah. take on the. I'm going to try to get this take on the site in 2022. So, oh, it, <laughs> by the way, like if you did want like a how lockouts work podcast, we did one before we went on hiatus on the MLB show. Mm-hmm. So Zach and I went through like everything you need to know about a lockout. 
So I think that would make a, a good companion uh, podcast to, to this one on the state of labor, but a specific aspect of the state of labor. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, thank you to Michael Bauman, of course, for his contributions here to Tipping Pitches, his once-a-year contribution to Tipping Pitches, which is always full of rants and raves. We love having Bauman on the show. Um, before we get out of here, I want to remind people that you can buy Tipping Pitches merch with the promo code STRIKE. That is all of our t-shirts. That is our No Billionaires in Baseball hat, which is currently discounted as well. That is our sticker packet. It's a lot of good merch. Go check it out. Tanya.cc backslash nationalize. If you want to call into the show or write into the show, it's tippingpitchespod at gmail.com or 785-422-5881 to have your voicemail played on the show. Uh, Alex, is there anything else that I'm forgetting that people need to know about the podcast? Uh, about the, the podcast? I'm not sure. I'm currently dumping my my stocks in Tesla and, and Lucid and... Uh, and- <laughs> GM and stuff because uh, because of Michael's uh, insider trading advice. <laughs> <laughs> Don't accuse Michael of insider trading. He works for a publicly traded company. <laughs> um, thanks to everybody for listening. We will be back next week. Can you slip away? Slip away. Slip away. Yeah. Oh, I need you so. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya!